You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Shehan Karuna Telika, author of the Booker Prize winning The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I'm going to read the opening chapter. So this is where Mali Almeida, this dead war photographer, atheist, nihilist, convinced that there wasn't such a thing as the afterlife or any cosmic plan, wakes up to find himself dead, but also find himself in a very strange afterlife. So this is him orienting himself. You wake up with the answer to the question that everyone asks. The answer is yes. The answer is just like here, but worse. That's all the insight you'll ever get. So you might as well go back to sleep. You were born without a heartbeat and kept alive in an incubator. And even as a fetus out of water, you knew what the Buddha sat under trees to discover. It's better to not be reborn. Better to never bother. Should have followed your gut and croaked in the box that you were born into. But you didn't. So you quit each game they made you play. Two weeks of chess. A month in Cub Scouts. Three minutes in rugby. You left school with a hatred of teams and games and morons who valued them. You quit art class and insurance selling and master's degrees. Each a game that you couldn't be asked playing. You dumped everyone who ever saw you naked. Abandoned every cause you ever fought for. And did many things you can't tell anyone about. If you had a business card, this is what it would say. Mali Almeida, photographer, gambler, slut. If you had a gravestone, it would say Malinda Albert Cabalana, 1955 to 1990. But you have neither, and you have no more chips left at this table, and you now know what others do not. You have the answer to the following questions. Is there life after death? What's it like? Well, it was a long process, and I think it takes just as long to write a bad book as it does a award-winning book. And this one took several drafts and uh, several false starts. But I really started with the idea that I want to try to go story. I'd written a sports story before my first novel, Chinaman, was about cricket. And I was really sick to death of talking about cricket for the last 10 years. So I thought I'll do something completely different. I want to write a ghost story. And this was around the time of the end of Sri Lanka's civil war. And even after this 30-year war, which had gone on for most of my lifetime, we were convinced it would never end. When it ended, what I found disappointing was... It wasn't really opportunity to heal and address the wrongs. It was just a lot of infighting about whose fault it was, how many people died, how many civilians died, how many atrocities were committed. And it was just different parties laying blame on each other. No one really accepting responsibility. For me, I just thought, well, the living clearly don't have a clue. What if we asked the dead? What if the dead could speak? And if we allowed the ghosts of Sri Lanka's past, what would they have to say about the country, about what it did to them and where the country's headed? See, that's where I started with. But I wasn't maybe brave enough to write about the end of the war. And even now, writing about that is a contentious subject. So I went back to the 80s, 89, which I remember as the worst time in Sri Lankan history. And even though it's not that long ago, no one talks about the past. No point bringing these things up. You're just going to still up old wounds. So that's why I went back and I researched 1989, 1990, and all the unsolved murders and the unattressed atrocities. And that's where I really began just researching the victims of the war. Basically, I turned them into ghosts and I allowed them to speak. Unfortunately, there are many periods in Sri Lankan history that I could have set this story in. But I went back to 1989 because I thought it was sufficiently back in the past, but also most of the bad guys and the good guys, they're all dead. And anyone who could take offense was dead. So I felt free writing about this period in history, a period really needs addressing. I think with Sri Lanka, we tend to move to the next catastrophe. We just had an economic crisis. So the post-war period, it seemed like it was a time for rejoicing. It wasn't a time for looking back at our history. But I felt the fact that we don't talk about this stuff 
means that these wounds don't heal. It's a privilege to be able to say, okay, these are bygones, let's forget about him. But there are many Sri Lankans for whom these wounds are still very raw and unaddressed. So perfect memory was something I was interested in because, you know, you get in a car, instead you wake up in hospital with bandages on your head. You don't even be that violent. You have a bit of a hard night and you drink too much and you wake up wondering how the hell you got home. So these gaps in memory connected to intoxicants and trauma, it's well documented. So I thought it made sense that from the point of view of the drama that he doesn't remember. He only remembers bits. He has no idea how he died. He knows that many people would have wanted him dead and that creates the conflict and the intrigue. But also he misremembers his own life, as I think we all do, his relationships. I think he comes to realize that he wasn't very nice to the people who loved him. He treated all of them poorly. His mother, he's got daddy issues. And most importantly, his girlfriend and his boyfriend, the people closest to him, looks back on those relationships. Colombo. He lives in Colombo. It's where I grew up, the capital of Sri Lanka. We were sort of insulated from the war. And I think this is true for most populations that grow up in war-torn countries. The war happens in a contained area, hopefully, and people get on with life. That's what I experienced growing up in the 80s and 90s. So he believes that maybe if the world could see what was really happening in the north and east of Sri Lanka, maybe they would stop the war. So these are his ambitions doing this. I think we have this comforting delusion that when we close our eyes for the last time and open them again, all will be revealed, that the universe will make sense, our lives will make sense, God will reveal herself to us and tell us her name and it'll all make sense. But to me, at least for this, and growing up in Sri Lankan chaos, it made more sense that the afterlife was chaotic, that the afterlife was just as confusing as life down here and just as disorganized and just as arbitrary. When I grew up, in a middle-class family, English-speaking, which is important. I think there's a big language divide in Sri Lanka. English-speaking, middle-class family in Colombo during this terrible war. You know, bombs went off and there were assassinations and checkpoints and school will close down. I don't think we really experienced the full trauma of some... Since researching this, I talked to people who grew up in, not that far, a bus ride from where I was, Jaffna, the north of Sri Lanka ship, roughly like a hand. I was here and north and the east was where the war was happening. And those people who grew up there, of my generation, maybe similar background, had much more traumatic experiences and are lucky to be alive. And often I think you have that survivor guilt that you think, I'm lucky to have been born here and to be born a Sinhalese in this war. If I was born a Tamil in Jaffna, who knows what my experience might have been. So I think fiction helps you at least do that because you're right, we are caught up in our own views and... You know, you know how divided your country is and I know how divided my country is and every debate, everyone just sees their own perspective. And I think perhaps writing during the pandemic, I became aware of how non-essential writers are. But I think the one thing that fiction writers can do is we can allow a reader to see the world from a different perspective. And for me, that's important. Sri Lankan literature, I think that's the main part it plays for me. For me, I want to read stories from the war, from Jaffna, from the victims of the war. And I think that's really the only way we move forward as a country, because you can have politicians doing all sorts of reforms and everything. But I think really, we need to, at a fundamental level, understand the other and understand what we did to each other and make peace with that. Yeah, humans, we're not the be-all and end-all. We're just one state, but you could be in this state of consciousness, this kind of godly state, even a demonic state, but also the fact that all living creatures had souls and were affected by karma. And this is something we tend to forget, especially because animals are so tasty. So therefore, we have to justify slaughtering them on such a mass scale. So therefore, we want to believe that they don't count or they are somehow lesser souls than us. You know, you see why it's done. I'm not a big animal person either. I, I don't mind dogs, I don't mind pets, but I'm not a big animal rights person. But 
always it seemed curious that if you really believe in the notion of Buddhism and rebirth and karmic energy, that surely all living beings from plants to animals should have sentience. The cat doesn't believe that it's a pet. The cat believes anyone who's had a cat, that they are the center of the universe. I'm sure the cockroach believes that they are the center of the universe, just as the leopard does, just as we do. And back to the thing you said, how our body is informed, our view. But I think every living creature probably believes that they are the center because that's all they see. So I think that's why I explored that notion of talking animals and the idea that it's not just humans and their petty wars that matter, but all creatures suffer equally and experience joy. And therefore, it's convenient for us to say that certain things don't have souls, What whatever soul is. With advertising, I still practice. I still freelance. I've been doing it for 20 years. I think you're telling, I wouldn't say lies, but you're telling half truth. So you're massaging the truth in order to get people to change behavior by products and all of that. You're basically telling lies, but trying to make them convincing and authentic. But I think the fiction writer is the opposite. It's barely obvious. You're telling these stories with talking animals and demons. Even if you're not writing a fantastical tale, you're saying that this thing didn't happen. But within those lies, you're trying to communicate some truth, something that's real, something that happened. So this was the decision to write this in the second person. And the reason I opted for that is I was trying to problem solve right here. You can't interview a ghost. We have no idea what the afterlife looks like. So you kind of have to imagine. And one of the challenges was what does a disembodied voice sound like? A disembodied narrator. Because normally you can describe what they look like or have them in situations. But opening chapter, the narrator's body is being chopped up and chucked in a lake. I was wondering, what does he sound like? And I tried it in the third person and the first person, but I used the second person because I figured that if anything survives the death of your body, it's perhaps the voice in your head. And the voice in my head is in the second person. I don't know about your head or anyone else's heads, but in mine, it's the second person. It's almost like someone else telling me you should have worn a better shirt for this interview and you should have read a better chapter. You should have done this. And it's almost like someone else talking to me. And I tried this technique and I did. Mario Almeida also questions, who is the you telling the story? And this is addressed. Mario also ponders, is the voice in my, the you telling the story, is that me or is someone else? Is there a spirit? Because he observes this, that spirits, because they're so bored. Because I have to also figure out what do ghosts do all day? Because we know in the horror movies, ghosts turn up and be scary, but that's just like a fraction of their day. What do they do for the rest of the time, rest of the 364 days? And so this idea that they're so bored that they walk around following humans and whispering thoughts in their ear, which they mistake as their own thoughts. This was an explanation for me why Sri Lanka and why the world seems to get itself in such catastrophes every time. Maybe it's not because this country is cursed or that it's corrupt or anything. Maybe there's a lot of spirits wandering out, whispering bad ideas in people's ears. But Mali questions then, and I question that as well. What is the you? Are you the thing that is originating these ideas? Or are you the person listening to these ideas? You brought up meditation. I don't know if I could revise it now and make him heterosexual, have the story work quite as well. So that was the reason. But you're right. Since then, I've been questioned because now that debate is alive and well, right? The cultural appropriation debate. Are we allowed to write novels from the perspective of characters of different sexualities, genders, and ethnicities? I think we are. I think that's the whole point of being a novelist, or being a storyteller, is that you are allowed to inhabit other consciousnesses and see the world through other points of view. Of course, you have to do it well. You have to do it with respect. You have to do it with empathy and you have to do it responsibly. So I think you do need to do that, but I don't think we should be placing boundaries on what, because otherwise I have to write from a Sinhalese Buddhist Sri Lankan middle-aged dude, which is quite boring. What I draw comfort in is I think, look, I'm Gen X, not quite boomer, not quite millennial Gen Z. 
So we are the apathetic generation. We just sit there and write cynical novels and curse everyone. But I think the kids, the Gen Zs, the millennials who we saw on the streets last year toppling a government, those guys, I just really hope that their idealism is not stamped up because they really believe in a better Sri Lanka and in preserving our natural heritage and in building the country up. I would just say more books and putting more kids into leadership positions rather than the same old men who have been making mistakes. I think that would be what I would hope for Sri Lanka. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.